Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. If you do have a Bible, please do turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to finish up chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. We have many, many more messages to go in this series. We're in a series called A Light in the Darkness. Uh, Today, my message is entitled A Vision of Jesus. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus. And we pray for, first of all, I just want to pray for our teachers, public school, private school, home school, those that were thrust into this that did not imagine that this would be their job in 2020. Those that didn't think that they would be teaching over Zoom and the frustrations that come with that. Those that are trying to figure out hybrid options. And also for our students that are, all, that are trying to just be educated, get educated in the experiencing great loss. Father, we pray over all of these right now. And we pray for your grace. We pray for your wisdom. We pray for your peace, Lord. We pray for your equipping Lord, right now, would you send rivers of encouragement to all of those teachers and students, moms and dads that are in the midst of handling and navigating these issues right now. We thank you, Lord. We pray, God, that the time will come shortly when our kids could be back in school, back in sports, doing everything that they need to do in this season. We thank you, Lord, but in the midst of this navigation that we're in, figuring it all out, we thank you for the grace that we need. Would you give that today? Would you now open the word to us? Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Will you guide us? Will you transform our lives as we open your word today? In Jesus' mighty name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Now we are in the book of Revelation, and we are going to wrap up chapter one. We have another uh, at least seven to eight messages after that. I've already told you that we are studying the book of Revelation. The series is called A Light in the Darkness. And I believe that God's going to help equip us in the days that we're in as we continue to study his word. But I've acknowledged to you already that Revelation can be a very confusing book. And it has been for many, for many, many years. And it's not just Christians or disciples that are confused often by the book of Revelation, but many theologians as well. You may have heard of the great reformer Martin Luther, and he, uh, he thought or debated in his own mind and, and wrote to some degree that he was uncertain that the book of Revelation was supposed to be in the Bible. Now, I want you to know that he also thought the same about the book of James. Now, if you've ever read the book of James, it's quite provocative, straight to the heart, straight to the mind, not letting you out, no excuses. We thank you for James. We're so grateful for that book. But Martin Luther made these type of comments, and you may have also heard of John Calvin. John Calvin wrote almost, uh, he, he wrote a commentary for almost every book of the Bible except for the book of Revelation. Can you believe it? And so we have not only confusion among disciples of Jesus, but also theologians as well. And I said to you last week that although some would say that this is very hard to understand or cannot be understood, I say to you that we can understand the book of Revelation. And I would even tell you and remind you of what chapter 1 says, that for those that read it, for those that study it, there is a blessing for them. I believe the enemy wants to keep us not only from reading it, studying it, but understanding it, because in this book we find his demise 
and his clear end. It's not just the end of the world. It's obviously this eternal perspective of what is going to transpire in in our lives as followers of Jesus, but also the demise of the enemy. So certainly there is a distortion, and we want to clarify as much as we can. I shared with you that the Apostle John, who was in the inner circle of Jesus found in the Gospels, was the one who wrote the book of Revelation. He was somewhere in his mid-90s, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos as a political prisoner, unrighteously, of course, by the emperor Domitian, who sent him there, most likely because he would not worship him and pay homage to him. So you have a man who's in his mid-90s, has a revelation, a vision of Jesus Christ. He writes to us about what he saw because that's what the Lord told him to do. And we read about that. We will continue to read about that. Last weekend, my message was entitled, Pulling Back the Curtain, because that's what the word revelation means. It, mean, it means to unveil something in order to have an unobstructed view. A modern way of saying it would be to pull back the curtain. And as the curtain is pulled back in the book of Revelation, the first thing that John sees is Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today for the rest of chapter 1, a vision of Jesus. I already said, if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, and here's what it says. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool and like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its strength. I don't know about you, but I love reading about that. His face was shining like the sun. Later on in the book of Revelation, we read about that, that light emanates from Jesus Christ, that he is our light. We'll talk about that in just a moment. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and placed, he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And finally, verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, and the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I love how the scripture interprets scripture. You wonder, what are the stars? And Jesus tells you what the stars are. What are the lampstands? And Jesus tells you what the lampstands are. Some things aren't a mystery. You just have to keep reading the book. Amen. Thank you, Lord, that there's more than just some verses that are confusing. And we will find that to be the case 
when we are often confused by what is being said, Scripture interprets Scripture. You just have to read a lot more of it. And yes, there are all kinds of things that are in here, and I, I want to change a little bit of the style that I usually teach. Instead of having categorical points that I'm shoving everything into, I will have some points for you in terms of principles, things that we can glean from this passage. But I just want to work through all the verses. If you follow me on the daily word, you notice that that's actually what we do. We just go verse by verse by verse. And we're going to do that today because there's too much uh, symbolic language. There's too much that needs to be explained. So let's just go through it together, starting with verse 9. We read again, I, John, I, John, why does... Why does this matter, the way that he says this? Maybe you can't see this from the passage, but this is the third time that John refers to himself in nine verses. Third time. And the way that it's said, not just in English, but in the original language, is he's saying, I, John, it is me. He's assuring the people that he's writing to that is actually John. Why would he need to do that? Because they thought that he was dead. You remember I told you that John was the bishop presiding over Asia Minor and much of the Roman provinces. He was living in Ephesus for 30 years, and in 30 years, many would come to him. It's well documented in early Christian writings that John would live in this little apartment, and pastors and leaders, if you can imagine, would come visit him in this apartment for years and years and years. I would love to be in the living room and hear what John, the last living apostle, said to all of these different pastors from all over the Roman provinces. Would have been a great time to sit in his living room and hear the conversations that would happen. Well, he, end up, he ends up getting arrested in his mid-90s, and he's old. We can admit that, okay? He's older at this point, and so many, they don't have social media, email, phone calls. He didn't get, he didn't get to phone a friend. He didn't, it's not like jail here where sometimes people get to make a phone call. John didn't get any of that, and so people assumed that he was dead. So when he says, I, John, it is actually me. So it's very important. And I love what he says right after it. He says, I, John, your brother. This is just intimate language and fellow partaker in tribulation. I am your brother. He's the last living apostle. He's not like in our generation where people love titles. It is I, John the last living apostle. You, of course, know who I am. Random citizens, it's me. The most important one living still to this. I mean, he just doesn't go there. His humility is very clear in how he addresses people. I am bishop so-and-so. He just doesn't do that. And don't you love that? It's, It's honestly, to me, even in the way he addresses those that he's writing to, it shows humility. I think that's a wonderful thing in such a short sentence. I, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom perseverance, which are in Jesus, he continues to share of his own tribulation. And I I want to say something to you because in Revelation 7, it talks about the great tribulation. 
In the book of Daniel, it talks about all of these many years, and it's sort of a cryptic code that many theologians over years have tried to understand that there are a certain amount of years that come to this place of seven years of great tribulation where we have seals and trumpets and bowls, which we will read about in the book of Revelation later on. How do we understand these things, these plagues where the wrath of God is being poured out on the whole world? And let me assure you, the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the whole world. Do you know what the wrath of God is being poured out against? It's being poured out against sin. And everyone that abides under sin, living in their own righteousness, will experience the wrath of God. But not those who have already bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus, those that have already professed that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will not be judged eternally. We will not be judged eternally if we are found in Christ. That is the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus died in our place. He took our punishment. He took our penalty. He stood in our place. He rose again on the third day, promising that we too will have resurrection one day as we believe upon him. This is very powerful for us to recognize. I understand that people always want to know, when is the great tribulation going to happen? When is the wrath of God going to be poured out? And I want to remind you that John here is not talking about the great tribulation. He's talking about being a partaker in the tribulation that they are all experiencing already. He's 95 years old and he's in prison unjustly. I've already told you that during 64 AD, the great fires of Rome was blamed on Christians. The persecution was incredible, unfathomable. Christian people were experiencing pain, torture, loss of lives, homes, jobs, and everything you can imagine. This was normal for the Christian in those days of what they were going through because they were Christian. Not maybe. Not indirectly. It was absolutely because they were a Christian. If you identified with Christ, you would go through tribulation. And I wanted to bring this up because when we read about this, sometimes people study the book of Revelation. When is the great tribulation going to happen? When is that day going to come? And surely I'm not going to be a part of it because I'm pre-trib. I'm not mid-trib or post-trib. I'm not going to experience a little pain or even a lot of pain. I'm going to experience no pain, no suffering, right? Right? It's like no pain, no gain in the gym, but not as it pertains to the end of the world. And I think if we're not careful that we want to have doctrines that get us out of any suffering whatsoever. And so we tend to adopt views about revelation. So we're looking in this book. Am I going to have any suffering? Yes. Whether we go through the great tribulation or not, which I'm going to share with you my opinion two months from now. Whether we go through the great tribulation or not, I want to share with you a promise in John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Guess what word that is? Same word, tribulation. He promised you. Those that John was writing to, John's in prison, experiencing tribulation. It is guaranteed to what level I do not know, but do not be afraid of suffering for Jesus. Do not be afraid of suffering for Jesus. It is a high honor. The martyrs in the book of Revelation, they considered it an honor. Yes, they wanted vindication. Yes, they wanted to have that experience where they would transition into eternity and be with all of the saints and angels and the Lord Jesus himself in the new heavens and in the new earth. But it was a high honor. 
Ben, are you telling me I should be excited about being a martyr? No, I'm just saying do not be afraid of suffering. And don't try to find an end times theology where you don't suffer. Ladies and gentlemen, we must prepare our hearts for whatever has to come and not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. We don't turn back. We don't turn away. We turn towards. We look up. This is what we do. You cannot read the book of Revelation and somehow just hope for no suffering. Forget that. John, the man who wrote it, was in the middle of suffering. The people he was writing to, suffering greatly, suffering deeply. We must recognize that. It is truly the way that it was. And I think sometimes our end times theology can be hijacked by our love for pleasures, cares, and worries in this life rather than love for God. If love for God overtakes you and suffering happens, you may not enjoy it. But the Bible says in James chapter 1 that we count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. Why? Because there is more than the suffering. Come on, somebody. There's more than what you're going through. We're spending eternity with God, and it's going to be bliss. I don't know if I like the word bliss, but it's the only word that comes to my mind. It's going to be incredible. And so whatever we go through, whatever the tunnel looks like, to get to the glorious eternity that Jesus has prepared for us and for him together, oh man, whatever it looks like, whatever bumps, scrapes, bruises, so what? Let's go through it and let's go through it well. Let's suffer well. We don't have some weird, obscure view that the people of God will not suffer. I know that that does get preached occasionally. It's not my theology. In fact, I don't know how you can have that if you read the Bible. The Bible actually teaches us multiple times to suffer well, not for our own foolishness, but to suffer rightly in the name of Jesus. Peter actually says, ensure, make sure that your suffering isn't because of your own sin. Do <laughs> you imagine getting that as your encouragement letter from the apostle Peter in the first century? You'd question whether or not you were going to share with your home group. You were the first one to read that letter. What it says, it says right here that we're supposed to suffer well and not because of our own foolishness. I wonder if anybody ever was tempted to change the words a little, to give everyone a little encouragement because they were going through pain, right? How do you bring a little hard news to people that are going through hard things? I don't, I don't really know, but we're just going to keep going. Thank you, Pastor Ben. Verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Two things are being said here. First is a Christian reference. The first Christian reference to Sunday being the Lord's day. It does not take away from the Sabbath or the Jewish Sabbath being on Friday evening to Saturday evening. But it does suggest, and early Christian writing does suggest, there are other references to this in two of the early Christian writing books, which are attributed to the disciples, the direct disciples of Jesus, that Sunday was considered the Lord's day, not taking away from the Sabbath, but being the day that he rose again. This would be the first reference to that, the day of his resurrection. But we also here see this term, I was in the spirit. And this is mentioned four times in the book of Revelation. I was in the spirit. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around teaching where it just gets more confusing when folks try to explain what that means. But here's why we get a little confused, because we don't truly know what that was. We do know that he was somehow, trans it's not a dream. He was transported somehow into the spiritual realm, where his eyes were open. 
And he was able to receive and perceive things beyond just the natural. That's that eternal realm was open to him in a very unique way. And so we see this. He says it four times, actually, throughout the entire book. And he says, he was in the spirit and he heard a loud voice like a trumpet. Don't you love the metaphor of a trumpet? It's a description that he was startled. I don't know if you ever had somebody blow a trumpet near your ears. (laughs) I haven't. I would not have kind words coming back to said individual. But if you can imagine a trumpet being blown next to your head, this is what he's talking about. It was like a trumpet. He heard a voice that was startled. He was startled by the voice that he, that he heard. And the voice said, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, the seven influential churches of Asia Minor. Remember, John was the presiding bishop over them. They would have known John and John would have known them. Verse 12, we read on, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, being so startled as he was. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. You would know from the book of Exodus, chapter 25 and 37, 40, many passages actually in the book of Exodus that the golden lampstand is the menorah that God calls Moses to set up, not only for the portable tabernacle in the wilderness, but eventually in the temple as well. And it provides light in the temple so that it can be, things can be seen 24-7. In fact, the menorah was to be lit 24-7. Two times a day, they had to flush it out and replace it with pure oil. And the priests were in charge of doing this, providing light in the holy place. And now Jesus is making a statement. It's not just metaphorical, but it's also spiritual. John saw the seven golden lampstands. Later, verse 20, we have a clear interpretation what the golden lampstands represent, the seven churches, which is another way of saying that the church of Jesus Christ is now the light in the dark world, the light of Jesus, showing the glory of the Lord. It was a representation. Now it is a reality. The church is the light of the world, and Jesus is going to call his church to no longer be a flickering flame, but to be a bright and burning lamp, which is what this is really all about. You're living in dark times. This is a dark world full of sin, chaos, difficulty. If you did not know that, welcome to the party. If you've been jolted over the last year because you don't know what's happening, be assured, darkness in the world is there whether we saw it or not. I think in some ways we're seeing it just come out. And you know, somebody used to say to me that was mentoring me for many years, they would say, when sin or darkness or difficulty is manifested, we may see that as a bad thing and it may cause a response or a reaction, but we need to see what lies under the surface because until we do, we don't know what we're really dealing with. We don't know how to really pray. And I don't know about you, but as much as I would not like to know about and see all of the dark things in the world, what, I, what happens to me when I do is it causes me to pray like never before. It causes me to take God's word seriously like never before. And that's what we ought to do. That's what we must do. We are the light in a dark world. We must not be afraid of darkness because of who we are. He goes on here, verse 13, after seeing the golden lampstands, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. And he goes on to describe what he saw when he looked at Jesus. 
This is an extremely similar um, picture that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. In fact, it's referenced when Daniel saw the picture, he calls him the ancient of days. So when John saw Jesus, and it's a very similar description, there are a few details that are different. Daniel 7, Revelation 1, the picture of the ancient of days, the picture of Jesus. Listen, this is a claim to deity. Jesus Christ is God the Son. I know there are people and places that teach that the Trinity is not reality. They teach that Jesus is an anointed man and that he is not God the Son, that there is no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you have not come to that church this morning. You have come to a church that believes without question and without doubt that Jesus Christ is God. We believe without a doubt that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three, this is a mystery. Come on, come on, that rhymed. All right, all right. I just gotta feel good about that. I just gotta feel, I know. I know it's petty, I know, but it made me feel good. So just smile at me, just smile. That was good. That was on the spot, that was on the spot. Not planned, what are in my notes? What are in my notes, right? You proud of me? All right. We believe in the Trinity. We see clearly that Jesus was not merely an anointed man. Be reminded of that, who you're following, right? He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. All things were created through him. Nothing was made in all creation without him being through him. This description goes on to say that there was a full-length robe and a golden sash. This speaks of the high priest. Exodus chapter 28, the high priest had a robe all the way down to his feet. The golden sash is in a little bit different location from Exodus 28, but this speaks of Jesus being our high priest. He says, I saw his hair was white like wool. It was like snow. And no, this is not like us. Some of you, no judging at all. You have white hair. You have gray hair. I've got a lot of grays coming forward. They're just coming. I'm not ashamed at all. The Bible says that that's honor. Listen, that's honor. You, you want to feel encouraged today? You got that white gray hair? That's honor. Every now and again, I'll go get my hair done and somebody will try to, not, not usually, but it does happen occasionally. Somebody tries to talk me into getting the color. Now, if you have that, no offense. You, call it, you do what you got to do. No judgment here. But they try to talk me into that and they try to talk me into the regrowth of these cul-de-sacs that are forming here. <laughs> the flesh yarmulke that has happened. They're trying to talk me into going back. And I'm saying, I'm not going back, I'm going forward. If it turns gray, if it turns white, this is just Ben Dixon talking. It may not be you. You do what you got to do, but I'm going forward. If I lose it all, if it turns a different color, I'm just going to, you know, but in, in eternity, I'm requesting jet black hair. <laughs> That's what I want. I love all your hair. I love all the colors of hair. I love all the diversity in God's kingdom and God's earth, but I want jet black hair. I just do. Don't ask me why. I just do. <laughs> but that's not the description here with Jesus. When it says his hair was white, like wool, like snow, it's talking about the glory of God, the Shekinah of It was glowing like a halo. His, his hair, his head was glowing. That's what it's talking about. It, it's, a, it's a color that you can't describe. It's a picture that you can't describe. His eyes were like a blazing fire. His gaze is penetrating to the soul. It's talking about, in my opinion, his omniscience. That when you look into the eyes of Jesus, the one that can see right through your eyes, right into your soul, everything that is true about you and me, everything that is absolutely the case, no hiding whatsoever, everything disclosed, right? 
No getting out of this. No being able to say that's not what it really is. He looks into our eyes with a penetrating flame, burning up everything all the way down to the crevices of our soul. And aren't you grateful that that God, when he looks at you and he looks at me, he does so with mercy and love and grace. That's the God that we serve. He could, with those flames of fire, could be wrath and judgment. As some movies portray these, these gods, little g, in our world, with, whether it be other religions or just made up. But that's not Jesus Christ. When he looks at us with this penetrating gaze, I see this as love. I also see the tension of it, though, that his omniscience, he has complete and perfect knowledge of the past, the present, and the future of everybody and everything. It's intimidating. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and we know that the altar in the temple was covered in brass, and so were its utensils. This is a reference, I believe, to his glory and potentially to his judgment, His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. This describes, again, his glory, his majesty. Ezekiel the prophet and Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 43 also describes the sound of many waters. This, I mean, just the depth. You think of Niagara Falls. You think of the depth. It's a sound that you cannot describe. You ever stand close enough to a waterfall, you you know you can't describe the sound. It's just, it's overwhelming. It carries a depth. It's if you listen long enough, there's multiple sounds to take, a, to take away. He's describing something overwhelming. The, the voice penetrated through me. His eyes looked right through me. He saw this, and, and what did he do? That's a great question. What, what happened to him when he saw Jesus in this way? Verse 17, it says that he fell at his feet as though he was dead. He fell at his feet as though he was dead. Why did he fall at his feet? No, number one, he fell in worship. Number two, I think he fell because he thought he was going to die. This idea that when you encounter the glory of the Lord, when you stand in the presence of an almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God, what else can be your response? I'm, I'm not sure about you. I'm sure some of you in this room have encountered the Lord in ways that are indescribable where you've touched the glory of the Lord. In no way would I equate to what we're reading about here. I I would not do that for a second. I can't even fathom what this was like, nor, nor will I. And anybody that does, I don't quite understand that. What I'm saying is there are times where the glory of the Lord, the presence of God will touch, will touch us in ways that are indescribable. I've been in meetings, I've been in rooms, I referenced it where I talked about one time I was preaching at a youth camp of a church that I'd never been to. It was multiple churches, and I went that night, didn't really know anybody, and I preached on the holiness of the Lord. God is holy. He's set apart. There is none like him. God calls us to be set apart, not just in perfection. Jesus alone is perfect, but he wants our lives to be set apart. We're his servants. We're his sons and daughters. We're created for him. Our lives are not about what this world is about. Yes, we are in the world, but we are not of the world if we are in Christ. And so there's this, this reality where sometimes it feels like heaven opens and the glory of God, the presence of God touches us. And while I was at this youth camp, I can remember preaching on the holiness of God, touching, God touched young people. that We, we didn't even pray for some of them and they just were on the ground. It felt like you couldn't get low enough. And young people aren't going to do this if God isn't gonna touch them. I would say old people aren't gonna do this. 
There might be some that quickly want to fall, and that might be a Pentecostal tradition, but I'll tell you, this was the kind of power that causes people to fall over, not because they're trying to have some great experience or cool Pentecostal service. It was that moment where heaven, the heavens opened and God touched people so powerfully that it was like you couldn't get low enough. You just couldn't get low enough. I remember I had to use the restroom like a couple hours later after praying for a ton of young people. I came back and young people were on the ground for hours. I remember one kid got up and had never painted anything before and they went over to this section where you could paint. It was like prophetic art. And they painted this brilliant thing. And I walked up to this young person and I said, how long have you been painting? Because it was just fantastic. And they said, this is the first time I've ever painted in my life. And I thought, whatever juice you're drinking... The glory of the Lord. I've had times, every house I've ever lived in, I've had an experience with the Holy Spirit. Not because I sought it or asked for it, not saying that's wrong, but every living room that I've ever lived in, every house that I've ever lived in since being a Christian, I've had the glory, the presence of the Lord touch me so deeply I can't describe it. In fact, there are things that have happened in my life that sometimes I don't want to try to describe because I can, I can understand and appreciate what it's like to be on the other end listening to that. Did that really happen? Yeah, it really happened. So I'd rather keep most of it to myself, knowing that God and his love and his mercy toward me decided that he wanted to show me something that I couldn't fathom. John here, on a whole nother level, is explaining that he saw Jesus. Come on, somebody. He saw Jesus in his holiness, and it touched him so deeply that he fell down at his feet as though he was dead because he thought he was going to die. And you know what Jesus does in the same verse? It says that Jesus with his right hand touches him. And the first thing he says is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The word here, the Greek word for last is the word eschatos, which is where we get eschatology from, which is the study of the end times. I am the first and the last. I am the end. Isn't that very telling? I I am the beginning, and I am the end. We're looking for the end times. We're looking for all the unfolding events. We're looking for all that. We get preoccupied. Oh, what's going to happen? How's it going to happen? Jesus says, I'm the first. I'm the end. I'm it. That's what you need to know. (laughs) You're seeing me. I want you to look no further. Yes, I'm going to tell you about some things that are going to transpire, but let me tell you where it leads to. The path has one destination, and it's me. I'm the first, and I'm the last. Starts with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. This is a vision of Jesus. It's all about him, a revelation of Jesus and a revelation from Jesus. We read also here, verse 18, and the li- I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Keys represent authority, access, I have the keys over death and over Hades. I have the keys over this life, and I have keys and authority over the next life. I want you to know that first, he's comforting John. Secondarily, he's comforting those that John's going to speak to. And guess what? It says the same thing to us. Jesus has authority over that which is now and that which is coming. I don't know where people get their hope from if they don't get it from Jesus, because it's temporary. It's not lasting. 
It won't last long. Wherever you find your peace and your hope and your satisfaction, if it doesn't last longer than this life, then it's meaningless. Because every person is going to die. And for some reason, in our pandemic world, we have lost this mentality, and I want us to gain the mentality again. No matter how we die, Jesus says to us, I have the keys to death and to Hades. I am the first and I am the last. I live forevermore. We've got to go back to the eternal perspective where we see Jesus both in this life and in the life to come. He's our destination, nothing else. He is the resurrection and the life. He, he goes on to say, John, I believe it's chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. If you don't have Jesus in your view right now, or if you feel like you've been discouraged or you've been knocked out of your right focus, I want to encourage you to refocus. I want to encourage you to have Jesus in full view, right in front of you. Jesus has got to be the one that we're looking at. He's got to be what we're looking for. Verse 19, therefore, he says, write these things which you have seen and the things which are the things which will take place after these things. This is sort of a chronology of the book of Revelation. Write the things that you've just seen, write the things that are to the seven churches, and write the things that are going to take place. Revelation 4 to 22. There's a lot more that's going to unfold. And at the end, hey, John, don't forget I'm the last. It's all about Jesus coming and his second coming. This is powerful. He goes on to say, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, there are theologians that would tell you that that these are angels, that each church has an angel. I, I believe the word um, doesn't have to mean that. Most of the time, it's, it's referring to an actual angel in the book of Revelation. Literally, the word behind angel here is messenger. And so there are lots of people who would think that it's representing, speak to the seven stars, the seven messengers to the seven churches. I believe it would be that key elder, the pastor of each church. I don't think it's referencing an angel. It would be outside of our understanding. I think it would be outside of the understanding of the original reader. So that's the interpretation that I go with. And he says, the seven churches are the seven lampstands. He says this, we of course already know that. I want to share with you three things that we can take away from what we've just read. The first is this, a vision of Jesus will bring us strength. A vision of Jesus will bring us strength. John was a prisoner in his mid-90s. Here he is on the island a Patmos. This is an island of rock. It's just stripped of vegetation. 18 months he's there with his companion, his assistant, Prochorus. They're left to fend for themselves. They find this cave where they end up staying. This is called the Cave of Reve- the Revelation. You can go there today. You can actually visit this place. The Cave of the Revelation. John is quarantined. I know that's a word that we understand a little bit better in 2020. John is quarantined. I can imagine at this stage of his life, what he's going through, he needs strength. And here he has a vision of Jesus in his mid-90s. And I can tell you unequivocally that John receives strength. Do you need strength? Did the seven churches need strength 
where they became a flickering flame in a dark world and needed to become a bright and burning lamp. You read all of these scriptures that tell us that we are the light of the world, that we have the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't feel very powerful. You don't feel like a very bright lamp right now. You don't feel like what this says. You're not living in some of the promises. You're not living in some of the identity that is clearly spoken over the church of Jesus Christ. Do you need strength? Well, guess what? This vision of Jesus right now, if we can see it, if our heart is open to it, we will receive strength today. Why? Because we're seeing Jesus Christ. We need to see him as he is. Not just the Savior, not just the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is awesome. That is what we need. We need salvation. We need forgiveness. But ladies and gentlemen, I believe that we will be thoroughly strengthened when we continue to see Jesus Christ as the glorified, risen Christ. When we look at his glory, even if we're looking through the vision that John had, not suggesting that we're all to have our own visionary experience per se, but if we look through what John wrote and we capture it and we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it, God will open our eyes and he'll open our hearts to be exactly who we need to be today. Strength will come. Strength will come from God. Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not self-strength. Not self-sufficiency, but strength that comes from God and from God alone. To those who have ears to hear, I, I bet you this emboldened the church. Do you need that? Do you need strength? Don't look at this passage and go, yeah, that's great, cryptic, apocalyptic literature. Don't do that to yourself. Be reminded of the Jesus that John saw, the glorified and risen Christ. Be reminded that you are gonna see him. We are going to look at Jesus just as John did one day. This strengthens us. Number two, a vision of Jesus will bring us clarity. The context here is persecution. They're conflicted, they're confused. The church is dealing with everything imaginable. And I would say to you that Jesus has something to say. Jesus had something to say to his church that was conflicted and confused. He gives clarity in the midst of confusion. He wants to give clarity. The question is not, is Jesus speaking to his church? The question, is the church of Jesus listening to him? The assumption, may, could, it, it cannot be that we are everything that we're supposed to be right now. The, the assumption cannot be that we are hearing everything we need to hear, doing everything that we need to do. That is called pride, and it is a profound pride in the midst of a, of a world that we've never seen before, a time that we've never been through before, a place that we've never gone before. We are there today. And Jesus wants to give us clarity. He's got something to say. Isn't it interesting that we're going to read about the seven churches of Revelation that again and again and again, every closure of the message to each church, seven churches get seven messages, and at the end of each one, he gives a promise, and then he says to him who has ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, ask yourself the question, do you have ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to you? is the church of Jesus. Do we, Northwest Church, are we listening to the Spirit of God? Are we listening to fear? Are we listening to other views and opinions and versions? See, sometimes people will talk to me about the fear of what's gonna happen politically. 
I, I'm, not, I'm not apolitical. We, let's vote. Let's vote righteously. Let's vote in the authority of Scripture. But regardless of what happens, Jesus is the last. He's the last word. He's the last one that we're going to see. He is the last, and he's also the beginning. I'm not afraid. You should not be afraid. We cannot be afraid. We cannot be distressed. It does not mean we don't care about voting. It does not mean that we somehow don't care about society or about righteousness. But it means that we can't put all our eggs in one basket. We've got to be very careful that the narrative that we believe, the highest narrative, the highest thing that we believe is Jesus. Jesus has a plan and a purpose and he's speaking to his church, but sometimes when the voice of fear is very loud in us, we can't hear him. Even the way that things are handled today, that this is what justice looks like, that this is what the church should look like, this is what politics should be like. All of the hot-button issues that I could bring up and start making everyone uncomfortable in the room. Not ashamed, not afraid to do it. My question is, have we sought God? I, I, just, I just wonder, like, is this book really over us or are we under it? What does the authority of Scripture mean? The, the doctrine that we could potentially lose in this generation if we're not careful, it means the authority of Scripture, this book is over me. What it says is what my life is about. I'm not over it. I don't just get to say what this means and, well, I don't agree with that. And I don't. People are doing that because of convenience. People are doing that because of the flesh. Yeah, I'm going to tell you something about, a, I'm gonna tell you something about Ben Dixon. I'm going to tell you something right now. Right now. <laughs> tell you something right now. I've got the flesh. I know what anger smells like in my life. It's not hard. It is not hard to be mean and get mad. It's not hard. That's easy. It doesn't take much to lash out. Sometimes people are like, you need to speak the truth. I'm like, what you're suggesting is getting something off your chest. It's not speaking the truth. That's what you're doing. You're just trying to get something off your chest because you're mad. Have you prayed about that? Have you studied the word of God about that? Have you been on your knees to consider what the Holy Spirit is saying to you? Have you received, are you, are you living in the tension of all of this like the rest of us right now, that's why it's so hard, isn't it? Because even when you preach justice, it's not just vindication. It's not just revenge. Biblical justice leaves you in this tense place. It leaves you in this place where, yes, you want justice for the oppressed, but at the same time for the oppressor, you certainly want them to change. If all we do is jail up everybody that does wrong and they never get transformed, what kind of a world is really, is that? As a person who spent three years almost in prison ministry, I can tell you from experience that God had to give me that compassion and remind me of how imperfect I was. I had to come face to face with all that. So on one hand, we seek justice for the oppressed. And on the other hand, we're like, Lord, would you transform the oppressor? If we don't hold that tension... We easily forget who we are. Do you know that your righteousness is filthy rags before God? Why do we lose that perspective? Why do we lose that perspective? No, seriously. We lose that so easily. And we assume that we are the righteousness of God because we, already, we always were. <laughs> we weren't that bad. 
I think sometimes the most dangerous part of the negative aspect of religion is that we have this tendency to think that we aren't that bad and weren't that bad. And what it does is it robs God of his glory and why Jesus had to go to the cross to take our place. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a... Not everybody said it. Not everybody... Online, I didn't hear you. <laughs> saved a wretch. Saved a wretch. Yeah. How good is the good news to you in your life? He brings us clarity. And last, a vision of Jesus brings us to our knees. The vision of Jesus brought a 95-year-old man to the ground in fear and trembling. This experience changed John. It humbled him to worship. You can't see Jesus and be the same. It's why we hide. It's why we hide. I'm going to tell you what's not going to last in this generation. Casual Christianity is not going to last. There are some of you in this room, I'm going, to, I'm going to pull something out real quick. Some of you in this room, you went through the Jesus people movement, you experienced the glory of God, you walked a little bit in a touch of revival. I want to remind you, not everybody has the history that you do. And I'm asking you to cry out in this generation for what your life has been built on. If you've gone through the touch of the Lord, if you've experienced Jesus in transformational ways, will you cry out for this generation to have what you had? And then will you cry out for yourself to experience him in a whole new way? If seeing Jesus through even just scripture does not bring us to our knees, what is really going on? Today people are, are telling me all this stuff about how bad it is and Pastor Ben, aren't you concerned about this? You know what I'm concerned about? I am concerned that if we really think it's that bad, that we are not desperate for God. If it's really that bad, then why are we not desperate for God? What is it about this time that we're living in that is lying to us and telling us that it's just gonna get better? It's what we want to hear. It's the false prophets throughout the old covenant and the new covenant that want to hear prosperity, peace, peace, prosperity. You can find them all over the internet. You can find them. You can look for them. You can search for them. You want to hear that? You can find it. But what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying to his church? And when we see Jesus, does it even touch our hearts? Does it even move us to the place of prayer? Friends, I'm not here to guilt you. I am here to invite you. Come on. If we're not desperate for God, we've got to be. We better be. We can't judge this generation. We can't judge young and old. We've got to judge ourselves. We've got to look into the mirror, not through a window to see everyone else. We've got to look into the mirror that God would show us ourselves, that we would be desperate for God again. And if you've never been desperate for God, look into his holiness. Let him show you his beauty and behold the glory of the Lord. Friends, we're going to see him. 
We are going to see him. And when we see him, everything about religiosity and how good we thought we were and whatever life we had, it all just fades away and it's burned up. And we are looking straight at Jesus Christ in his manifested glory. And whatever comes out of us, I don't know what it will be, but it will definitely be this. We are not going to have a different response than what John had. And we better have it now. Say, Ben, you were on a vacation for a couple weeks. What did God speak to you? One thing he showed me was we got to pray. And not like I prayed before. I got to pray more than I've ever prayed. I got to spend more time with Jesus, calling out, crying out. I don't have the answers for this world other than what scripture tells me. And I can't make it happen. You can't make it happen. But if you see Jesus, you will be changed. And if you're changed what's around you can start to have a compelling picture of who he is. I want to be compelling, not because I'm trying, but because I'm just changed in his presence. I behold his glory. And as the scripture says that when you behold the glory of the Lord, you're transformed into his very image. When you behold his glory, not when you try hard enough or you try to get better, you work really hard, but you behold his glory, it says. 2 Corinthians 4 it's looking into him, beholding the glory of the Lord. You know why the generation and the culture is so set? The enemy wants to distract us to see everything else. Look at this and look at that. Even a false view. We don't need a false version. We need a real vision. I had this uh, picture. I'll close with this and we'll pray. Um, I had this picture as we were praying about... Uh, you know, in the mall, there's this place you can go to where you can buy scented candles. I'm just going to stay on my knees if you're okay with that because uh, I don't know if I should get up yet. But uh, there's this place in the mall you can go to where they sell scented candles. I've never gone there. I've walked by. I've been overwhelmed by the scent. But there are also these places that you can go and you can buy scented candles that are really smelled really bad and it's like a joke it's like a practical joke and uh, sometimes people will buy those candles for people as a joke you've, you've never done that before of course but they're horrible smelling yeah they provide light but they smell terrible when you light them the only thing you want to do is put them out but when you light something that you like and it's got that scent not only does it provide light but it smells good so there's the scented candle that's, that you're drawn to. And then there's the scented candle that you're repulsed by. And I, I was just thinking about what it means for us to be the lampstand, to be the light in darkness, that, that we're trying hard to be the light of Christ. We're trying hard to look like Jesus, but we don't smell very good. And so people want to put out the light because they're not interested, because the light is Christ. The light is great. It's not us. It's, it's him. It's the light of Christ. But, but because the smell that's coming from that light is not, it's nothing to brag about. I don't want that light. What do we want to be? We want to be a bright and burning light that not only provides light to those that need to see, but smells good in the process. Amen. I want to pray today, I want to pray that God would restore to us the fear of the Lord. The 
that God would show us his glory. Will you pray that with me today? Will you pray that you're changed and you're transformed by the glory of the Lord? Like Isaiah, will you stand right now? Let's pray. Thank you, God. I would tell you too, if you're not right with the Lord today, this is a great day to get right with Jesus. This is not a joke. The word of God is true. God wants to show you who he is. He wants to change our lives, doesn't he? It's this time to get right with him. All you gotta do is just tell him now, Lord, I wanna get right with you. I repent and I turn to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You tell him that right now. Don't wait for me. Don't raise your hand. Just tell him, Jesus, I wanna get right with you. I wanna make my life right with you. I wanna follow you. I wanna see you. I wanna behold your glory. I'm done with the nonsense. I'm done with the foolishness. I know that this is a time to get right with you. Father, we thank you today. We pray that we could see you in a whole new way. We wanna behold your glory. We wanna see a vision of Jesus, even if it's just looking through the book of Revelation, what John saw about you, we pray that we would see. Today, I pray for every person that is listening to me online, in this room. I pray, God, that we would behold your glory, that we would see you in your holiness, and we would be transformed and changed by your power. Restore to us the fear of the Lord that shuns evil. That's the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom that changes our lives. And that we, like Isaiah, when he saw you, would say the same thing. Behold, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen him, the glory of the Lord. Let us see you, Lord. Let us be focused on you and run after you with all of our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, and God's people said, amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.